Would you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13? I'd like to begin reading in verse 13 uh, and read through verse 25. This is a, a portion, a smaller portion than the actual sermon itself, and for time, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Again, here we are in Acts chapter 13, verse 13 and following. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he led them out from it. For a period of about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is the Lord's word. Would you bow with me and let's again ask the Lord's help. We thank you, Father, for your scriptures, and we thank you for the hymns that we are blessed to be able to sing tonight and for the reading of scripture. Our Father, we come to you asking that your spirit will be present with us to help the servant and to help these your people, those who join, um, uh, who, who are here in this building, but those who will join also from afar. Oh, Father, we ask that you will advance your kingdom and your glory, and I pray that the Lord Jesus will be lifted up faithfully. I humbly ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. We are long overdue to be back in um, the book of Acts here. And I've been stewing on this passage for some time as, and, and wondering, boy, how do, you, how do you cover this, a sermon like this, uh, in, a, in a sense that's uh, intelligible? Here, Paul was, has preached to the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles on his first missionary journey. Recall that he is in Pisidian Antioch, which is central region of Galatia, and it shouldn't be confused with Antioch, from which Barnabas, Saul, and Mark were sent. Mark, having deserted them and having gone back to Jerusalem, we are told that Paul and Barnabas went on the Sabbath into the synagogue and they sat down. And we are told this by Luke. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. The Lord here presented a wonderful opportunity uh, for Paul, an open door uh, for the gospel. 
a couple of weeks back and even this morning in the message this morning we considered this idea from the book of Colossians where the apostle asked for prayer saying praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak and, and I'm constantly reminded of this very thing that our efforts are in vain apart from the blessing of the Lord for which we seek in prayer. Our efforts are always in vain apart from prayer. The, the emphasis, the importance of what we do on our knees can never be diminished. And I would say this for you older people who say I have no energy and perhaps your backs are weak and, and your arms are failing. Can you pray? <laughs> can you pray? What a wonderful blessing that is and how the kingdom of God is advanced on the knees of the Lord's people. Um, it's a wonderful sentiment, and I think you see this constantly in the scriptures, this necessity for prayer. And here the Lord has given the apostle such an opportunity to speak about what does the apostle want to speak, about what is he going to speak. And I think about this. What, you, you're given one chance. You're given one opportunity, an open door, what do you talk about with people? Why do you have hope? Well, because I'm a Republican. That doesn't work. What would Paul say? Well, the Romans, you know, they're evil. Would he speak about immorality and, and why people should be moral? Would he speak about the Jews and their land, which we hear of so often in our own times? Perhaps, and I'm being a little sarcastic here, Perhaps they, he should say something about God having a wonderful plan for you or your best life now, the power of positive thinking and the power of words, how God can help you achieve your dreams. This is what Paul might have spoken about had he been an American. Good thing he wasn't an American. Of course, we do address evil. We reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and, and instruction as the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy. But if you have an opportunity to speak, anything at all, what would you tell those who are listening? The apostle, knowing this synagogue, has just heard the law and the prophets read, goes straight to proclaiming Jesus Christ and the good news concerning him. Why? Because, friends, it's a very basic, very basic lesson. If a man or a woman gets everything else right, his politics, his morals, and his finances, but he gets Jesus Christ wrong, what does it profit him? He profits him nothing. He loses his soul. And this is why last week, as we considered Peter's words, and that why his words were so tremendous, when asked, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He got it right. The most fundamental, the most basic truth, the most essential truth, Peter got that right. So then as we come to this passage, we have for us, a faithful account of the Apostle Paul's preaching the good news concerning Jesus Christ to the Jews and to those God-fearing Gentiles. And he would say in verse 32, and we may get to this next week, we may not reach this far, and, and Paul writes, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. What is this good news? I want you to notice, and, and we will be working through this the next few weeks, its foundation is in the law and the prophets. It's rooted in the Old Testament, grounded in the promise and grace of God. So many people wrongly assume that the gospel begins in the New Testament. Oh, that's a staggering thought to me. And I used to think this. 
There's the Old Testament, right? The law and all the, the terrible history of the Israelites. And then you come to Matthew and then it's like, oh, the gospel. The gospel comes. And, and we're wrong to think this way. So that's the first thing we need to understand. Second, that God has fulfilled his promise. And third, that Jesus Christ is the focus of that promise. So again, I want you to listen to verses 16 through 22. And we're going to see that the foundation of the gospel is in the law and the prophets. It's rooted in the promise and grace of God as recorded in the Old Testament. Listen again to verses 16 through 22. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. When it comes to the gospel, so often it is presented, and I fear... um, I fear it's understood this way as a very individualistic and consumeristic type of thing. It's like a bargain. It's like something, a cheap commodity that we try to sell. Act now while supplies last kind of thing. Reach into the bag and see what you've won. It's good news only if the person thinks of it as good news. It's a very very subjective kind of thing. Again, treat it as a commodity that I am free to take or leave, that I can embrace or cast away. It's cheap, it's shallow, it's without substance or weight. Notice that the apostle here addresses the men of Israel and you who fear God. They all together are in the synagogue. And and as Paul begins this, and he starts with our Old Testament, the scriptures, he starts with this, this isn't a new message, but an old message that has come to see the light of day. And I think this is one of the first things we need to understand because the gospel has been cheapened. We've cheapened it. And we don't see, we see it as merely a, a subjective experience. Do you want Jesus? Try Jesus. This is not how we should talk about the gospel. This is something that is rooted in eternity and it has such weight and such glory behind it, as we'll see here. Again, it's not a new message. It didn't begin in Matthew, but it's an old message that has come to see the light of day. It is a message that is given to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The message itself is a Jewish thing. The gospel has its foundation, again, in the law and prophets. Listen to just three three verses. Galatians 3.8, we are told, now this is, remember, Abraham existed, lived around the year 2000 BC, a little bit earlier, 2200, 2100 in this area. Paul writes in Galatians 3, 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. 2000 BC, the gospel was preached to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Jesus said this in John 8, 56, 
He said to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Look at the covers of your bulletins. Right? Where's the lamb? God will provide the lamb, Abraham says. And Paul to Timothy wrote this. From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I had a professor who said if, if, if God hadn't given us the New Testament, the Old Testament still would have been enough to show us the gospel. That's a really important point. And this is Paul's point as he starts. Notice where he starts. He doesn't start with John 3.16. He starts with the Old Testament and preaches the gospel from the Old Testament. So here he is. Preaching this this gospel message, an old message, which is not grounded in man's decision-making powers, which are nothing. Paul tells the men of Israel and those who fear God, he says to them, listen, that is, pay attention, give heed to what I'm about to tell you. And he goes through this survey, an overview of the Old Testament, reminding them, informing the Gentiles of God's dealing with them, holding forth God's faithfulness, and if you will, their rebelliousness. And so we're going to cover these verses fairly quickly. But I want us first to see God's faithfulness, that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Again, it's a brief survey, but there's no way that people can take credit for their salvation. Remember what Jesus said to, to Peter in Matthew 16. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So often we think of the gospel as me choosing Jesus. Friends, that's just not true. There's no way you can substantiate that in Scripture. And, and this, these Old Testament passages, and I'll prove it to you, and you'll come away going, whoa, this is amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. Because Paul didn't even know about John Calvin. And the things he says just blow my mind as, as we come into this. Israel, you didn't find this God or stumble upon him by chance. We are told that the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Turn with me as we just uh, look at a couple of passages briefly. In Genesis 12, 1 through 5, we read this. I'm going to start in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife, or Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and those, the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That, by the way, right there, the last half of verse 3 is where Paul in Galatians 3.8 says the gospel was preached. 
Right there, it's preached. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And then turn with me to chapter 15. As we see this again, I'm reading through uh, 1 through 6. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then if we were to go down just a little bit further in this part, we see that this covenant, this, this animal is cut in half. And who is it in this dream that walks between those parts? It is God himself. It's not Abraham saying, I'll make sure you do it, Lord, because I'm going to walk through the parts. It doesn't work that way. The man who walks through the parts is the one who is promising upon death. I will do this or you can kill me. And it's God himself who walks through the parts. Abraham. Abram was not looking for the Lord. But God sought Abram out and said, I will be your blessing. I will bless you with descendants. I will bless you with land. And I will bless you so that all the families of the earth are blessed in you. That's what God did. We read this in, 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 in Deuteronomy 7. Listen to this. The Lord did not set his love on you. Speaking to the children of Israel, he did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Paul says, men of Israel and you who fear God, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. He chose them. That's the beginning of the gospel. God sets his mind. He sets his eye upon you. And furthermore, he says, and he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Seventy people in all went into Egypt. And some estimates say as many as two million people came out of Egypt. God made a nation out of a family. He made them great. And furthermore, Paul goes on to say, he led them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. That is, it was God's arm that was the overarching power that controlled every event in Egypt. All ten plagues. Israel didn't deliver themselves out of Egypt, but God delivered them out of Egypt. He goes on, for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. That is, it was God's faithful providing. Um, prov uh, it was God's faithfulness in providing for them water and manna, keeping things from wearing out and protecting them from their enemies. And he goes on to say, 
when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. That is the 400 years plus 40 years in the wilderness and the 10 years of of period of Joshua's conquest. Again, in, in all of these things, Paul points out it was the Lord who destroyed the nations and dispossessed them and gave to Israel a land flowing with milk and honey. Are you seeing a theme here at all about the gospel? He goes on to say, after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. The judges, you recall reading the judges? What a terrible time in Israel's past. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yet God gave them judges to deliver them from their enemies and to lead them spiritually. And after the judges, he gave them Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king like the nations had, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after this, he had removed Saul, and he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Paul points out that God removed Saul. Saul feared and listened to the people above the voice of God, but God raised up David to be their king, a man after his own heart, yet himself not a perfect man, but one who when he did sin, he repented and was contrite. And we've gone over this very briefly, but I want you to look at all that God did. Some will say, the gospel's not in the Old Testament. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. Listen to these again. This is what God did. He chose our fathers. God made the people great. God led them out of Egypt. God cared for them or put up with them for 40 years. He destroyed the nations. He distributed to them their land as an inheritance. He gave them judges. He gave them a king who would lead them in the ways of the Lord. God was faithful in all of these things. This is Paul's point. God was faithful. But his faithfulness comes into even greater, um, uh, uh, greater glory when you consider what Israel was like as a people. You've heard it said, probably, that the only thing we uh, have contributed to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. Have you ever heard that? We're sinners. And, and, and clearly, Paul implies that the Israelites were not a deserving people lest any man should should boast. Listen to these things again. Reading somewhat between the lines, but coming from the text. Listen to verse 18. Again, we hear, For a period of about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. Some of your versions may say he cared for them for 40 years. Um, There is some manuscript differentiation here. But he put up with them in the wilderness. So all the while the Lord is taking care of him in the wilderness, what are the Israelites doing? complaining they grumbled they complained they rebelled they worshiped the golden calf they worshiped false gods they disobeyed and tested god according to numbers 14 22 they tested god 10 times he gave them judges in verses 20 in verse 20 uh, we're told that he gave them judges as was pointed out they were a miserable lot and every man was doing what was right in his own eyes some of the most wicked stories in the whole whole of the old testament come right from judges what a wicked people they were disobedient to the lord again in verse 20 he gave them samuel the prophet 
And what did they want? Instead of Samuel the prophet, they wanted a king like the nations. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, we are told this, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They reject their their king. They rejected their God. And in verse 21, we're told that he gave them Saul, a king like the nations, a man who did not fear the Lord, but who esteemed men. And we are told in 1 Samuel 15, 23, that Saul rebelled against the Lord. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. My friends, the gospel is built not upon a decision that someone has made, but upon the promise of God and his faithfulness to see that it happens. Time after time, Israel blew it, and they deserved God's wrath. And time and again, we are confronted by the grace of God throughout the Old Testament. Think of it, all of that, we've just this brief survey, all that has taken place is God saying, I'm going to do this. And every single time he does, he follows through. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 106, 43 through 46. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. This is quite a picture, isn't it? It's quite a picture of us. The blessings of God given to a people who are totally undeserving of any blessing. That's a great way to start a sermon, don't you think? (laughs) Let's recount your history, shall we? Let me tell you what the God of our fathers did on our behalf lest we think we're so deserving. The blessings of God are given to a people who are totally undeserving of any blessing. But it doesn't stop here. For the apostle continues that the promise of God as revealed in the law and the prophets that God has brought to fruition, he has fulfilled this promise. And we see here in verses 23 through 25 the fulfillment of of that promise. Again, listen here to 23 through 25. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. The gospel is the fulfillment of God's promise. Again, my friends, this is why it's good news. We're not selling Jesus. We're informing, we're declaring what great things God has done for the sinner. 
It is the fulfillment again of God's promise. It was a promise made to David. While David was a sinner, clearly not himself the Messiah, God had promised him in 2 Samuel seven twelve through 13 when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever is what the Lord promised to David. And then we hear the angel Gabriel in Luke 1, 30-33, saying this to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. My friends, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to David way back, way back in the scriptures. And we are told further, says Paul, that God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. One commentator said the savior would have conjured up in the minds of his listeners, the judges who ruled in Israel or uh, God himself who led his people in time out of exile or to the coming Messiah who, according to popular opinion, would liberate Israel from foreign rule. What kind of Savior came to Israel? What kind of Savior was Jesus? Was was he a Savior from Roman rule? It is clear that Paul has in mind something so much greater than just deliverance from political oppression. Because he will say in verses 38 and 39, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. John would write in 1 John 3, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And his name as Savior is Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so this is the Savior that was promised. This is the Savior that was promised to David and to all of Israel. This is the one who would sit on the throne of Israel. But how can you be so sure that this, this one is the guy? And listen to what Paul says. And after, had, uh, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Jesus came after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Again, this commentator said, The Jews knew of John the Baptist, He was known among Jews and God-fearers in Palestine and in the dispersion. Peter referred to him in his sermon to Cornelius and his family, and the disciples of John resided in, in, in in Ephesus. So John the Baptist had tremendous notoriety. Jews and God-fearers understood and knew who John the Baptist was. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 7 and listen to what Jesus says about John the Baptist, a significant character. Who could argue with John the Baptist? Among women, he was uh, the greatest. Jesus says this in verses 24 and 28. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And Zacharias in his prophecy concerning John said this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And John himself would say this, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Paul brings up John the Baptist. He brings up this notoriety. And he, 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 he brings to mind what the Jews and the God-fearers should understand about John the Baptist. And they're all going, oh, he's a John. He's, he's a heavyweight, this John the Baptist. We really ought to listen to him. And yet, what does John the Baptist say? That Jesus must increase and I must decrease. You think John the Baptist is great. You want to honor the prophet? The prophet among prophets? You want to honor the prophet among prophets? Then listen to what he said about Jesus Christ. When he says, I'm not even worthy to undo the sandals on his feet. The lowest task a slave could do to anyone. And John says, I am not even worthy to do the lowest task in comparison to Jesus Christ. Some had thought that John himself might be the Messiah, and yet John himself again viewed himself not even in a league with Jesus Christ, but he had come to prepare the way for people to meet the Savior. John would baptize with water for repentance, but he says the one who comes after me is going to baptize with fire. It's not going to be just an external rite. He's going to change hearts. Do you see, friends, what God has promised, God has fulfilled. That's the good news. And what God promises, he does. And when he says, if you, like Abraham, believe me, I will save you. And I will give you, make, give you a land. And I will make you a part of a great people. I will be your God and I will be your great reward. And it is through my son who I promised was going to come. And it's going to be through him that I'm going to accomplish these things. And John the Baptist said, yep, this is the guy. (laughs) You need to be looking at Jesus Christ. And the Jews and the Gentiles, the God-fearing Gentiles would hear this. And Paul would say, now listen. Listen to what they have said. Salvation is of the Lord. And he is faithful. He is faithful. Paul speaks of Jesus Christ pointing out to his listeners 
that he is not some kind of Johnny-come-lately fad, but he is the one who has come to fulfill God's promise. As we continue into this, we will see as, as Paul begins to, to sharpen, <laughs> sharpen the, the edge of this sword and to lay hearts bare as he's now going to bring to bear upon them. Now, what are you going to do about this Jesus Christ? Are you going to recognize him for who he truly is? Or are you going to cast him aside like some cheap piece of junk? You see, the gospel is significant and it's weighty because it's God's word. It's God's promise that he foreordained before the foundation of the world to accomplish salvation for his people. We will pick up there next time. Uh, Would you bow with me and let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word and we thank you for the gospel. Father, it is not us claiming you, but it is you claiming us. It is what you have promised from ages past, how you would bring a blessing to all the families of the earth, how you would see us and you would set your love upon us and you would open our eyes and save us by the blood of your son. Oh, Father, we pray that the weight of your gospel, the good news, the weight of it, the glory of it, might be felt in every breast. We pray, Father, that we would cherish it as your good gift, as your grace, as your faithfulness to bring about life for your people. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your work. We thank you for coming and conquering, destroying the works of the devil. And we pray that we would rejoice in you now, and ask all of this in Jesus' name, your name, amen.